everyone, and welcome to Coaches Clubhouse Season 2, The COVID Year. I'm your host, Nicole Auerbach. We've spent this season talking to coaches from all over the sports world about how they dealt with the onset of the pandemic last spring and everything that followed. Today, we're joined by a coach who's emerged from the weirdest season in sports history as a new household name. Adia Barnes grew up in San Diego and excelled on the basketball court. She went on to have a successful college career at the University of Arizona, winning Pac-10 Player of the Year in 1998, before embarking on more than a decades-long professional career, winning a WNBA championship with the Seattle Storm in 2004. She came back to coach her alma mater in 2016, taking over a program that hadn't made the NCAA tournament since 2005. People told her not to take the job and that the rebuild would be too daunting, but she didn't listen to them. And despite winning just six games in the 2017-18 season, she guided the Wildcats to a WNIT title the next season and had the program ready to break out of its NCAA tournament streak of futility until the pandemic shut it down. Before we get into what happened when she was able to get back on the basketball court, we have to talk about what happened off it. She gave birth to her second child, a daughter, in September 2020. Then she coached Arizona to historic season which included a run to the Final Four for the first time in program history, beating perennial juggernaut UConn to reach the title game and coming up just one point short in the championship game, ultimately falling to Stanford and legendary coach Tara Vanderveer. But along the way, the nation fell in love with a coach who is unapologetically herself, a mom, a woman of color, and a voice for the sport moving forward. Now, here's my conversation with Arizona women's basketball coach Adia Barnes. So we always start in this season, we always start with the moment that sports shut down. Where were you? How did you find out that season was over? Well, so I remember um, we were in a really good situation. We were like playing well, playing some of our best basketball, projected to be a number two seed, maybe three, and host the first two rounds of the tournament. So we were just like ready. Um, Sorry if you hear banging in the background. That's Matea. Um, We were ready. And we were just like, you know, like we were energetic and um, confident. And then I remember like thinking it wasn't real during the Pac-12 tournament kind of started to happen. But then like we were in the tournament. So we thought, oh, like you think it's nothing. You don't think a pandemic's going to happen. So you think like swine flu or something is going on. And I remember like there was talks about it. We It was right after the Pac-12 tournament. And then I got the phone call from my administration as I was walking to the practice gym for practice and saying the season shut down. But I didn't really think it was real. I thought like, okay, it's kind of paused. I really didn't think that it was actually going to shut down all the tournament. I thought, okay, we'll probably start up in a week or two. Um, But I remember walking in the gym, having to tell my team, and it was devastating. It was one of the hardest things I had to do. And they were just like crying and sobbing. And you think about it, that was like years of hard work. It was year four. And like all the adversity, you know, being bad, winning six games my second year, it was all those kids that kind of lived through that. So like for Dominique, Lucia, Amari, it was pretty devastating. I felt awful. It was like one of the hardest moments as a coach. That's one thing that we've heard from a lot of these coaches is just sort of this idea that the uncertainty of not knowing what's next, the, the kind of the conclusion of that particular group and those seniors and that, you know, upperclassmen how do you move past that or get, get over? How did they move on? Like, does it take weeks to, to process that that was the sudden end to it all? I think it took months um, because 
it, it doesn't feel real at first. Like you think like, oh, there's nothing that can shut down like the NCAA tournament, right? So I think that you don't, like, like it didn't register for a while. Even like after two weeks, you still thought it was going to happen again. So it took time to actually feel real. Um, and for those players, it was, it didn't take weeks. I think it took months. I think it was just really devastating because after that, our whole world changed. It was like, there was lockdown. It was just like so much uncertainty. And then there was a realization after like a three, four, five weeks. It's like, wow, it is, it is done. Like what's happening in the world. I think it was just like, and then being scared of not catching it and realizing we were just in Vegas. There was like a case that had happened at the Luxor hotel. So we were just like, oh gosh, we're, we walked to the Luxor, you know, just stuff like that. It was just scary, but devastating. In terms of the program build, because you mentioned where you were and how far you'd come from the season of winning just six games. What goes through your mind there where, where you're about to break a streak for your alma mater as well, which we're going to get into what it's like to coach there, but to break a streak of not making the tournament since 2005. So to not get to do that, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you knew what pieces you had coming back, but was that also a crushing element of this? Yeah, I think, but it was streak. So the streak was one thing like devastating in itself. The other disturbing part and the difficult part was we like, we had a chance with that group that came here to do that. So like their blood, sweat and tears and all their work was like just the beginning. And it wasn't even that too. It, like that was the worst part, I think. Then the streak and all that stuff's the other part. But like, we weren't only making the tournament. We were probably on a, having a good chance of being really successful. I think probably at least going to the Sweet 16. Because first two rounds at home, we would have sold out. We would have had 15,000 a game. So I think that that would have set us up to win two or three games. So I think our road and like not knowing what that ever could be, that was another hard part because we did so much hard work early to put ourselves in that situation. And we were in the situation and it was like, eh. it was basically the same seed we would have been this, that we were this year. And you see, we went to the final four. So what was quarantine like pregnant? You know, it was actually like, <laughs> cor- like quarantine just in general was devastating. The pandemic devastating people lost lives for sure. Um, very traumatic. But for me personally, like in the Pac-12 tournament, I was still hiding the pregnancy. So if anything could have been the, the silver lining out of that was the fact that I got to hide. So I was hiding out four or five, six months. So I didn't even release it till almost six months. Because no, if you would have seen me, you, like I couldn't hide that I was pregnant. Because after like the Pac-12 tournament, I was starting to show more. But because I was home, no one knew. So I was at home and like a lot of people besides in the program, they didn't know I was pregnant. So that was like the good thing for me. So when you're going through all of that and then also preparing for a season to go back to campus, um, what was that like to juggle? I think one thing we've learned, um, especially as you've kind of talked more about being a mom and coaching at this level is there aren't a lot of female coaches that have really young kids and babies and newborns and things like that. So I'm really curious about what that experience was like, especially, you know, when you're in your late stages of your pregnancy and preparing for the season to start at the same time. Yeah. So the pandemic in itself, resting was a great thing. So being pregnant in the pandemic was good. Um, I don't, I didn't want people to think it was like a pandemic baby because it probably could look like that, but I was pregnant before that. (laughs) I wasn't, I wasn't busy trying to get pregnant. (laughs) So I have to clarify that. Um, but it, it was better because I had never had so much rest in a pregnancy. Normally I would have been traveling all over the country and I'm older. So I don't know if I would have sustained the pregnancy. 
because the percentage of me keeping the pregnancy was like 29% because I was 43, almost 44. So I don't know if I would have like been able to stay pregnant and like traveling all over the country, not sleeping. Like it's really hard in your body and I've always done it, but I've never been 43 pregnant. So um, I think that was probably the blessing. The other part was it was really difficult being pregnant because like my husband couldn't come to any appointments. So I think during the whole pregnancy, he went to one appointment. So like doing it on your own was really hard because it's, it's something special together. He didn't get to experience any of it and you couldn't like record it because of all the, all the HIPAA rules. And um, it was very stressful going to the hospital because people are sick in the hospital. So you're going to these appointments and like people are sick. You don't know who has COVID. So you're like terrified to get COVID pregnant because there was no research on it. So we were in lockdown. We did not go to the grocery store. We did not allow a nanny. We did not allow like babysitters, nothing. No, not, no one to help at home, nothing. Not even my parents um, because we were scared. And it was Savo's families from Italy. So they were witnessing two months ahead of what we were going through. So they told us, oh, you need to get the mask. It's going to get bad. It's already getting bad in Italy. So we got the mask and all that stuff ahead of time. Thank God, because all that stuff was sold out when the pandemic hit. So we were like kind of prepared because of his family. We were watching it. Um, but then like having the baby, like during, during quarantine was hard too, because like no one could come see the baby. Usually like my players are at the hospital, you know, Salvo and I were in the hospital. He barely got to the hospital cause he couldn't leave. So it, it was just a totally different experience. Like no one, my parents only have met my daughter once and they met her at the NCAA tournament. That was the first time they held her wow. and she was six months old because we just were in a tight bubble and we were afraid. So it was, it was hard. What, how, how did you handle like the immediate aftermath? How much time did you take away from the team? How, like, how do you manage that? Yeah. So it said I took a month, um, but I didn't take a month. So I had a C-section. Um, so I took like, like, I remember I was making calls in the in the hospital, right? Like until the day, the day before I got pregnant. So like four days after my C-section, I was on Zoom calls. And I remember like, I remember saying to myself, like, okay, like you got to slow down. But there was like all these decisions about the season, voting on PAC. It wasn't stuff I could like have someone replace me because it was like program decisions because of the pandemic. So some of it I had to be on, I wasn't going to miss. But there came a point like after like a week, 10 days, I was on like Zoom calls like four or five a day. And so then my doctor was like, look, and I got a little bit sick and my blood pressure was like off the chart, like dangerous. I had to go see like this cardiologist and do all this stuff. And so my doctor said, you need to stop taking Zoom calls. You need to relax. Like your blood pressure can't be so high. Like you can go back to the hospital. And I was kept a couple of days extra in the hospital because of my blood pressure. So some of it's like the age, it was called preeclampsia. So like, I was like blurred vision and like, could like pass out. So they kept me in the hospital. I did all these tests and then I got out, but I had to like take my blood pressure for a while. So they were like, you got to slow down or else you're going to be on bed rest. So then I stopped for a few days taking Zooms and I took like one or two a day, but I didn't really even take like weeks off. So I say a month, but I probably took like total like five days off. But it's, it's what I choose. It's because what I choose because the job, like I caught probably because I said, no, I can't be on those calls. But it was like, I felt it was important. And like, I'm a woman, a head coach, you feel kind of pressure, not from anybody, from yourself. Cause you're like, you don't want to miss stuff that's for your program. So I think it's the indirect pressure you put on yourself as a woman. Did you ever feel like 
I know people always say work-life balance. I know it's never a balance, (laughs) but is it like day to day? You're just like, all right, how do I get through this? How do I feed my child, get to practice and navigate this? Yeah. Like I think in a typical year, it's not like that, but there was just like different circumstances. There's COVID. It's like my son's not in school because we're in a bubble and I just had a baby. So I think it was chaotic because of the circumstances in the pandemic. Because normally he'd be in school. So like I'd have a babysitter with the baby, but then he was at school. I'm doing Zooms at home because we're not in the office. It was like romper room. Like every Zoom my son was in, it was like, (laughs) you know, like mothers at home. Like this is going to affect moms for years because so many women got out of the workforce. They had to take different jobs, take hour. I don't know how other women did it. There's me and my husband and we had help, but then we didn't have help during the quarantine. But I don't know how like a single mom would have done it. I wouldn't have been able to do it. Like it would have been impossible. So I, I mean, shout out to all the single moms that have made it through COVID with homeschooling. I don't know how they did it. Seriously. I was like struggling with my job, like zoom calls and this, there's two of us and two kids. Like it was very difficult. So I can't imagine. Your husband always worked with you. Have you guys always kind of done that together? Yeah. Cause when I, when I met my husband, I was playing pro. And he was overseas. He was coaching on an Italian team. I was playing on another team. So when I asked him to move to the States, he like ended a three-year contract and moved, but his profession was coaching. So at first, like he got his citizenship. He went and like coached in Montana. He went and coached some European, like some Asian national team. And he was kind of back and forth. But we were like, if you want a family, like if we want a family, like we can't have a family for a part. So um, he ended up like sacrificing and moving here his aspirations were to never coach in the States. Like he wanted to be a professional coach in Europe. As you're going through the season, as as it starts to get underway, at what point, I know you mentioned that you kind of felt like you had a team that could at least get to the sweet 16 in 2020, but at what point could you feel like this thing could get rolling or really had the potential to be special? I mean, Ari McDonald was, you know, the defensive player of the year in the league, like obviously she was already one of the best players in the league. Maybe the nation didn't know that at that point, but when did you feel like you had a special team, special season? Um, there was glimpses of it during the year. Like, I think, um, you know, our Pac-12 game against Washington state, I thought we were just solid, like great defensively after we had lost to them. I felt like, um, the home game against UCLA, I felt like we could be good. We could play at a high level. Did I think we were going to go to the championship game? Absolutely not. Um, we had a little setback against UCLA in the Pac-12 tournament, did not play well and lost. And so that concerned me because we were going into the NCAA tournament and we weren't playing our best basketball. So I was kind of like, oh gosh, this is like not the best time to not play your best basketball. But gave them like days off, um, practice, like made things fun that week. And it was the total transformation after that. And then we like came together. We treated it like another season. We wanted to do something special, leave our legacy we always talked about. And then we kind of got hot at the right time. So when they came to you and said, like, we need a mental break, we need a reset. I'm just wondering what that dynamic is like, because I think we've gotten glimpses of you and the way you connect to your players. But I imagine there's a lot of teams where maybe the players don't feel comfortable asking their coach for that. Like, did that say something about them? Well, no, because in the beginning, they weren't comfortable asking. And I was kind of hurt. I was like, you're not comfortable (laughs) asking me. I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, I was hurt that they weren't comfortable because they said that you know, I always compared them, you know, to like different teams. But I was like, yeah, because I want us to be great. And I was like, you guys, but if you truly need some time off, just tell me. 
So finally they came together and told me, I said, that is fine. If that's going to make us play better, I'm for, if we're just practicing, do I think we need it? Yeah. But if we're practicing and not getting anywhere. So we came to grips with that. We had a great conversation. Um, and then they had the time off and it was like the, it was the, the difference maker. And I'm like, I'm like, guys, tell me, I'm like, I'm not someone who'd get mad. And they're like, but we didn't want you to think we were soft. I'm like, I wouldn't think you're soft because you need a day off. Like I was kind of hurt that they like weren't comfortable at first because I feel like I'm really approachable. I feel like the, like I listen and I want the best for them. But like, I, I was fine with, I was like, you guys, that's fine. Do I think it's bad time? I don't think it's the greatest thing for us, but if mentally it's going to make us reset, let's do it. And so we did it. And it was like the best thing ever. I know you talked about this pretty early on and we're really vocal about it about the way that the bubble was set up and what it meant for working moms. What do you think in, in you pushes you to speak up and be, you know, kind of be out on front on this stuff? I mean, you know, cause I think when you talk about diversity, a lot of the time we talk about gender or race, mm-hmm. but even like the diversity and experience, I think in this and like life stages and just kind of talking about all those things, I, you know, Holly Rowe is a close friend in the profession. We all know what she did during the title game to bring up yeah. breastfeeding in the broadcast. Mm-hmm. But I wonder just like if it was a conscious decision to talk about being a working mom and, and raising those issues in addition to everything else, obviously coaching in the final four as a woman of color. And like there, there was, yeah. there's so many things you represent to so many people, but I mean, as a mom. Yeah. So it wasn't a conscious effort in the beginning, because I think that when you're a mom and you're doing your things, you don't want to like bring attention all that. Like, I don't want everybody to know like where I'm pumping. Like I just would do it on the DL all the time. And that's what you kind of do as a mom, GSD, you know, that you just get stuff done. And I think that it wasn't something I thought about bringing attention to because I didn't, I, I probably would have thought at first, oh gosh, this will hurt people. But when I started to realize that, um, that like it was affecting more women, then I spoke up about it because I was getting phone calls and I was like, wait, you can't do that. And I was like, how do you not? So I felt like, like I felt compelled to like say stuff about it because here I was, I was traveling my kids and then my friends from like big power five schools that were assistants weren't allowed to. And I was like, wait, what do you mean you're not allowed to? And I'm like, they were like, well, I'm being told this. I'm like, no, that's not true. Say this, this, and this. If that's how you get around it, that's what I do. And so I started to help like three or four women and they were able to then travel their kids. So I was like proud that I was like, wow, I did something to help make a difference. But I didn't know that at first. I didn't know it was such a thing because I'm a head coach here. So it's my reality. And like, when you're so busy, you have two kids, you're like doing your thing. You're not like, you're kind of like oblivious to some things just because you get you put your head down. You're like trying to survive. Right. So when I did that, then women were thanking me, you know, one of the women, she got a a pretty big job. And like, I remember weeks before she was quitting. I, I was like, do not quit. Like you are too good insects. So she sent me this long, you know, message and I felt great. And I think that I was just asked questions. I answered them honestly. And I said, we were an afterthought. It wasn't like I was like going against the grain, but I just spoke up about it because it's like the reality. And I didn't feel like I was doing anything special. I thought I was doing just what moms do all the time, but no one knows that. Like no one knows it's a reality. I might have to pump at halftime. That's like what we do, but women do it all the time. So I felt like, gosh, like I'm not embarrassed about it. Like, I don't care. Like I pumped it. I like, it was funny. I had like my breast pumps on at halftime the first five minutes because I couldn't, I normally I wouldn't do that. Normally I do it before, but there was more media stuff before. So it messed up my, my time, but it's like, I don't care about that. Like they're seeing me do it. They're going to do it one day. And I'm going to realize how hard it was, but 
they're going to respect that. So, um, like I didn't tell Holly, I was pumping someone else told her, but I, that's why I was out so late. But like, I normally wouldn't have said that I would have just hit it. There's like so many times I've been out in the game where I've had like milk all over me and think, you know, like there's been times I'm like, I probably smelled like milk. And I'm like, guys, if I smell like milk, sorry, there's milk all over my shirt. You know, it's like, but it's what it is. So I like, I'm not ashamed of it. Like I, I feel like I can do my job great. And I feel it, make, it makes me better for mom. So I wanted to be a voice to say, don't stop coaching because you want to be a mom. Don't like get discouraged. Is it hard? Yeah, it's hard. But everything worth it is hard. Being a pro athlete's hard. Coaching's hard. Like you just do it, but you're better as a mom. And I think that we need to support women. I think that's why I started talking about it. Like support me doing this. Like make it easier. Like celebrate it. It's not a bad thing. It's not shamed. It's like, it is what it is. If we need to pump, make an area we can pump. Like I don't care. I'll pump in front of people, but it's like, the reality is there is no place sometimes. Like it's, it's not, it's not easy for us, but we're women's basketball. I'm not coaching men's basketball. Women have children. Like we are all on this earth because of a woman that made it. Yeah. It's, it's basically like the structural stuff. I think that you're talking about, which, which I think is the important piece that doesn't always get assessed. It's, it's, it's about having those rooms be available. It's about it being built into the plan versus like making exceptions. It's just like making it. So everything that's already going to be hard is going to be hard and making the stuff that's doesn't have to be hard. Not that hard. Well, and supporting, I think that's like, it's always an afterthought as a woman, like it's an afterthought. So I was like, Oh, we could have done that, but it's never a, like this is so women are head coaches around the prime of their life. They're going to have kids probably if they want to have kids. And a lot of women don't have kids because it's too hard. So I don't think it should be like that. Yeah. You have to have support. You have to pay for more help. You have to maybe bring family, but it's like, it's never, we're never a part of the plan ever. I look at, I look at like our work environments at any school. There is not one place to pump like, or breastfeed. I am lucky. I have my office. So in my office, I can shut the door and do it. But like, what about the woman that's in ticketing down the hall that doesn't have an office? Is she supposed to go to a dirty bathroom? But like, it's just like, it's not set up for women ever. The airports, I know men design airports because like you have to walk like across a mile sometimes to catch an elevator. It's just like, it's hard. And it's like, there is no help sometimes. Like, and I don't understand that. Like I in Europe, like, it's it's just better in Europe. I remember in Europe, if I'm pregnant or with a kid in a stroller, they move you to the front of the line. Like you don't wait in line. It's just different. Like the, our system is not set up to support women and families at all. It's just not. What was it like to go through the bubble experience as a family? I mean, it was hard. Like, so the first stressor was I didn't, I wasn't guaranteed a suite. And so not that I need some sweet, but for three weeks of two kids, I need a sweet. Like I would eat <laughs> extra myself. I don't care. Yeah. I would have given my right arm. Like at first I was like, well, if we have a room with four of us, I'm going to die for th- possibly three weeks. So I got there, the room was perfect, but I didn't know if we were going to have a suite because they couldn't guarantee it. They didn't know what floor you were on and there wasn't suites on every floor. So I had, I had our director of ops calling like 10 times. Like I will pay extra. I can upgrade my points. My give my status to Marriott like do everything. I was like stressed about it. And then the talk, my friends were calling me from there. They didn't allow microwaves. So I had Jessica call them. I need a microwave to the breast milk. So I had bought a separate thing. It was just like, it's a stressor. Some places there is no refrigerator. There's like the drink refrigerator, but it doesn't get cold. So there's like so many things and it's just difficult. It's like, 
it's not like even a thought to be prepared for that. And then we're in quarantine the first day and a half in your room, can't leave your room. It's very difficult to five roll, but it's my choice. I get that I brought a whole bunch of stuff, but there was like not even anywhere to like put, bring your kid outside, like a balcony or like, um, I don't know, like a open area just for the players or that playroom would have been good. Like there was nothing. And our walk, luckily we walked to testing. So that was kind of his walk outside, but that was hard. I mean, if there would have been a little area of the park across the street just to run, I mean, even for the mental health of the players, it would have helped. Not only for me as a mom. Um, from a basketball standpoint, as you guys went on your run and got really hot during the tournament and Aerie became a household name, um, which was amazing. She was incredible to watch. Um, did, like, uh, what is that like to be a part of? And also when you're, when you're kind of playing with house money, this might be a bad analogy because, yeah. but when you're doing things that the program has never done before, what does that feel like? I mean, you don't feel pressure. I mean, I think that when you're there at that point, you automatically feel like, like, well, I, I think you automatically felt a little pressure because, oh, we could have been there the year before. We weren't. So like the pressure I felt was like, okay, so you need to make it really good this year. You didn't do it last year. It doesn't, you know, you don't want it to look like a flu, but then it's like, it's uncharted territory. But I was worried because we didn't do it last year. I was worried that this year would hurt because we didn't have the experience from last year. So that kind of concerned me a little bit, but it was just like, just do what we can do. We're going to do our best. It's been a weird year. And I challenged my team and always talked about, it's going to be the team that handles the most adversity and the teams that can handle the bubble. I felt like the mentally strong teams that were like, they're okay. Handling the bubble would be like, would be successful. The ones that didn't, had never done it, had never traveled. I think they were going to have a hard time. I thought we handled it pretty well. For, for Ari in particular, um, you know, it just felt like so many games and moments, you know, we wanted the ball in her hands or, you know, she was going to face the the best player on, on the other team and defend them. Um, what is it like to coach her? I know she committed to you twice and, you know, that the, there is a clear relationship between her. But what is, what is she like to coach and what was it like for her to be part of this this season, this turnaround for Arizona? Yeah, I mean, it, she's great. Like, I think more importantly than a, more important than a basketball player, she's a really good person. So she's a good kid um, that just wants to be good. This just does her own thing. She's not no drama. Um, good teammate. Everybody likes her. And um, for me, I've watched her turn turn from this like shy person to like evolve into like a leader, a dominant player. So that's been a fun process to watch. Um, but I think that. Just, just watching her through that process has been great. Like she kind of, she, she evolved. So I'd say her first two years, she worked hard, but she wasn't like zoned in. Like this year, she was like ready in the zone, ready to go play pro. Like it was a different sense of urgency and ready to bring in, do this some, something special because she didn't get to do it last year. So she really played with the chip. Like she had something to prove and that's how she played. And so, um, yeah, it, she was great. Yeah, it was, I thought it was really cool about the run, you know, as someone who wasn't, you know, I, I never really covered women's basketball closely until I was doing some work for Sirius XM for the tournament. It felt like we got to know you, we got to know Ari, we got to know your team. And I, I think that was really cool because I feel like in women's basketball for so long, people still, and people still have this perception that it's just UConn and everybody else. And you guys are part of this this emergence of there's just so many elite teams with elite players and different 
national championship contenders. Yeah. How do you kind of explain that and and sort of just the the it, it's parody, but it's like parody at the highest level of the sport. Yeah, so I think that that's the great thing about women's basketball, especially this year. There were so many upsets, like you know, Wright State, like you know, us, um, just different things happening and so many good games. So I think that was great for women's basketball because I think for so many years, it was just UConn, like in the Pac-12, it was just Stanford. So I think you're seeing more players kind of go different places. Now there's a trend, a whole bunch of players like are going together to South Carolina. So it's another powerhouse. NC State has been like good for a few years now. So I think that more teams are are, are better. Um, but, you know, on the West Coast, I feel like the West Coast is really under um, underrated. I think the West Coast is overlooked, not watched a lot. There is a definitely an East Coast bias with reporters because they just don't watch us. They're not up to 11 o'clock at night watching us. Um, so I think for us in the tournament, it really opened people's eyes to Aerie and to see like, wow, she is really good. Not just, we don't just hear about her. She's freaking good and she's fast and she's dynamic on both ends of the floor. So I think that was exciting because we have some really talented players. And I think that, the tournament like put a light on the Pac-12. The Pac-12 is tough. People don't really know though. And you had the two the two final te- two final teams, us and Stanford, playing for a championship. And there's some great coaches. There's some good teams. And I think this year it was down a little bit because we chose to play 22 conference games. No other SEC, no other conference chose that. So it was like beating up on each other. So it hurt in our conference. It hurt five through nine. I think we would have got more people in if they would have had ten, you know, preseason games that were easy because they would have ten more wins. So they come in at 20 and, you know, 10 versus like, you know, seven and 15, you know? So I think um, there was just a difference in that. And just basketball nowadays, I think, you know, you have some players that want to play hard. We weren't the best team. Like if you look at us on paper, every other team we played throughout the tournament was pretty much better on paper in most positions except for maybe Aries. But we play together as a team. We play our roles. We fought, and I think that's what surprised a lot of people. No one in the world, there was probably, there was 5 million people watching, like 4 million, like 998,000 did not think we were going to be there. They didn't, and, but that's, I think, what's special. Like, it's possible. You get a team hot at the right time, you have the stars aligned, and it can happen. Now, for me as a coach, my job is to get there again and try to win a championship. Like, I don't want to be a coach here at Arizona where it's like a fluke. You were there as a miracle, you know, Aerie left and then you don't ever go back. So now I think there's more excitement about the program. We're getting great players. So my job is to try to get back there because the bar is high now. So how do you do that? Like, what are the next steps? I mean, you have to get good players. I mean, whatever people say, recruiting is our lifeline. Um, and, and we're doing that. So now people are excited. You know, it's funny because I, like, I think I don't think about these things. Like you forget people watch everything. So there's been so many kids that I've called and been like, I watched you coach. I love watching you coach. I would love to play for you. I'm like, really? You know, it's like, I kind of feel like it kind of feels cool. I'm like, wow. They're like, yeah, I watched the way you did this. And I'm like, oh, you pay attention to that or pay attention to the shoes or what I said or something I was like embarrassed about. They're like, oh, I loved your passion. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. But like, I never, it's stuff you don't think about, you know? So wait, please. So you're, so you're saying that someone was like, you flipped off the, you know, you gave the double birds. And I love that. Cause first of all, I would want to play for a coach who did that. I have not had, there has not been one recruit that didn't say that was awesome. I was like, and I was like, really? And that's not why I did it. Like it wasn't even like, so I have not had one person or one parent say, 
I mean, they've all loved it. They've all been like, I wish my coach would have done that. And I'm like, your coach doesn't say something like that. Like to me, it's like, how does your coach not say that? Maybe your coach says like, I, Tara's not going to give the birds. Like she's not, she's just more seasoned than me. But um, I was just passionate in the moment. And I'm like, like when they tell me, I'm like your coach doesn't say like, go kick their ass. Like, they're like, no, I'm like, really? Like to me, that's not, I don't know how they don't do that. Like yeah. I'm different. I don't know. <laughs> well, I <laughs> saw it and I was like, that's what I, I want. Someone who's like us against the world and, yeah. and really is that. And I, I felt that way too, that it was kind of like a three week recruiting pitch for you. Cause again, I feel like we learned so much about how your program is run and the personality and all of these things that just felt really cool. Cause you don't always get that when a team goes on a tournament run, sometimes it's about just the basketball, but I feel like we yeah. got to know you, we got to know your family. We got to know Aerie. We got to know what this Arizona rebuild is about. And I know that this was, a, it was a job that people told you maybe don't take this job. So it was this really cool. I, I again, I'm a reporter. So I see it as like a narrative and a story, but I feel like we, we learned that story during those three weeks. Yeah. And it's funny because like, it's not even stuff I ever thought about. Like, it was just like, I, like I, it's, when you're in it, like I wasn't even thinking about that stuff. Like I am me, like I'm pretty transparent, which is good and bad. Like your biggest strength is a lot of times your biggest weakness. But like, um, I didn't even, I wasn't even th- thinking about a lot of that stuff. Like, honestly, some of the stuff, like I grabbed my baby right after the game. I didn't grab her after the game. So everybody see me grab her. Honestly, I didn't have, we didn't have a nanny. Our nanny left us and um, like we parted ways at the Pac-12 tournament. It was just too hard with COVID traveling. And so I couldn't bring her in a bubble because she was stressed out with with Pac-12. So like I had someone else watching the baby. So normally when it's not like paid help, you know, you're like, okay, let me get her off her hands. So normally I'd never grab her after game because like I've been touching people, like a safety thing. But I grabbed her, like get her out of my friend's arms because like it's, she's not the nanny. And so like it's stuff that I did that like, it wasn't like I grabbed her to be on camera, you know, but people don't know like the background, what was going on. Like I lost a nanny during the game, right before the game. It was like the hardest month of my life is which year. It was a disaster. Like I'm going to my game at Washington state in Vegas and like our nannies, like having a tough time. And like, I send a manager over to help and she leaves. She takes a flight home. So I was like stuck on the road and I didn't have time we had two days to bring someone else in the bubble to get into the NCAA tournament. You had to have seven consecutive tests negative. I couldn't fly someone in in two days to get into the bubble. So like I was stuck in the NCAA tournament without a nanny. So it was like my director of ops helping my boss, like the lady who was holding the baby. That's my, that's my administrator who I've known since I was 17, but she's a mom. So she got it. And then I flew one of my friends from Tucson. That's a doctor. She's retired. So she could only come with me the first week. So I was able to get her into the bubble because she was here in Tucson for a week. So I was like, it was like the hardest month of my life. Like, but no one knows that I wasn't advertising that. So the baby would have never been at an eight o'clock game. She would have been at home. Like, it was just like, but no one knows that. But that's the stuff women go through all the time. And I've never even told, I, I did tell that story to NBC because I was like, people didn't know that was going on. But mom was like, we deal with that stuff like all the time. The last question is just, you know, we're recording this late April, 2021. It's still pretty recent, all of this. Um, But I'm wondering if getting out of the bubble, getting past the championship game, again, thinking of how do I sustain actually past the WNBA draft as well? Mm -hmm. Like, 
how do you look back on that, that hardest month of your life? Is it a blur? Do you remember every little moment? Like, how do you think about what you just went through? Well, it's a little bit of a blur because it was just, I I was like surviving. And so like, I'm proud of myself, honestly, a little bit because it was a difficult, like I'm looking back, like, I don't know how I've made that work because it was a difficult time and coaching the most difficult games in my career. So I remember like, I cried a couple of times on the road. Like, oh, I can't do this. <laughs> like, like, I'm having a tough day. I don't know how to do my house. Like, oh, it's okay. You know, like, because like, it was hard. Like the baby was up. We were going to play UConn. My daughter doesn't know I'm coaching the most important game of my career. And she's up from like four to six. I got throw up on, I got spit on. And I was like, this is unbelievable. Like I sat there like, and I put it on, I put it on Instagram because I was like, this is like what we go through. But then it made me stronger. I think what made me stronger was like all the other women sending me messages and like all the things it stood for for me. So I felt a little bit of pressure, but it made me work hard. So I was like, wow, like I need to show like we can do this. Like, it's okay. Like you're tired, suck it up. You know, like I need to be strong. Like, you know, only two WNBA players have done it. Like being the only like black female in the final four, which I didn't know a lot of that stuff till I was there. And then like, don't worry where you fit in. Like sometimes you're black and sometimes you're not, and sometimes you're not black enough. It's like, it was all these things and emotions. It was hard. And I remember being like, just do your best. Like I just got to do what I can do. I'm going to do my best. Like I may not look as good one day on the sideline. That's okay. Like Capri's been like pulling out my hair, the whole bus ride. Like you're okay. You know, like it is what it is. You know, I'm a little bit more overweight now. I haven't had time. Like that's an excuse, but like, I'm trying to survive. Like, so no, I'm not worried about working out right now. I can't. Like, it's just so I think I just did the best I could. And I'm proud of how I did it because it was hard. And like, I haven't really had a day off since then. Like, I came back a week. I went to USA Basketball with the kid again. And now I'm back for like a month. But in the middle of two coaching changes, like a lot of stuff. Well, we appreciate you taking some time to reflect with us. Um, And again, I think you're experience and openness was really inspiring and, um, validating to a lot of people. And again, you made a lot of new Arizona basketball fans out there. So congratulations on the run. And we look forward to watching what's next. Thank you. That was my conversation with Arizona women's basketball coach, Adia Barnes. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coaches Clubhouse is also available on the SiriusXM app free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcasts. Coaches Clubhouse is part of the SiriusXM podcast network. The executive producer is Andrew Emmer. Sound designed by Robert Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. And special thanks to SiriusXM's senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting, Steve Cohen. Serious XM Podcasts.